0: one of my most repeated phrases was something like this. It's not fair. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) That was the phrase. Those of you who are parents are probably rolling your eyes right now, uh, remembering the last time that your own child yelled this at you earlier this week, or maybe even earlier today. (laughs) This tends to be the refrain of children who are beginning to learn the ways of the world or just the refrain of annoying younger siblings like me. (laughs) My parents typically responded to these diatribes about the unfairness of life from me uh, with grace and wisdom, but after the hundredth time of me complaining to them about how unfair their parenting of me was, or complaining to them about how unfair a situation at school was, or complaining to them about how unfair it was that my brother wouldn't let me follow him around every minute of every day, eventually they would snap and they would say, Amanda, life isn't fair. Life isn't fair. I bet that's a tool some of you parents use Pretty often, life is not fair. This was, uh, this was pretty crushing news to me when I was a small child who was ultimately concerned for fairness uh, for several years of my life. That was like my biggest concern. Everything needed to be fair. But it actually turned out to be pretty good advice um, because, well, life isn't fair. <laughs> Bad things happen to good people. Um, No good deed goes unpunished. Um, The greediest and the most power-hungry among us often rise to the top and make life miserable for the rest of us. If you uh, keep your head down, that doesn't mean that no one else will bother you, right? It's not fair. It's not fair. Our world is upside down. It doesn't follow any rules about fairness, any laws about goodness. And I would argue, no one knows that better than Jesus. Our scripture passage for today comes from the middle of his last discourse in the Gospel of John, really like his last sermon. Jesus in the Gospel of John is pretty wordy. He says a lot of things. Uh, And so we come upon him sort of in the middle of this very long monologue at the end of the Gospel of John. So he's addressing his disciples after the Last Supper has just happened. They're at the table, they're chatting, mostly Jesus is chatting. But it becomes really clear that he's not just talking to them, those people gathered in that upper room, but he's also talking to us. Not just you and me, but the whole future church. He's naming the reality of how hard it will be to remain a part of what it is that he is doing in this world that hates him. Owen oh, also, he says, "The world is going to hate you too." Um, if the world hates you, he says, "Know that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own. However, I have chosen you out of the world, and you don't belong to the world. This is why the world hates you. Elsewhere, in the same discourse, in the same sermon. He says, in this world, you have distress. Other translations say, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble, Jesus says to us, and I hate to break it to you, but this is as true a promise as any other that Jesus offers to us. This is Jesus reminding us, like a good parent, that life isn't fair. And as maybe disturbing as that, is to you. Jesus does not equivocate here. He's not wondering with his disciples about how hard it might be. He is telling them with certainty that their lives, that our lives, are going to be full of trouble of every kind imaginable. And then, on top of that, Jesus is about to peace out. (laughs) Did you hear that part? Jesus tells them I am going to the Father. I'm going to leave. And he has promised this Holy Spirit, right, that will come to comfort us and teach us and advocate for us. But Jesus himself is out of here. The disciples naturally begin to interrogate him as they normally do. They ask him all of these questions. Jesus, where are you going? How can we follow you if we don't know how to get there? Do you have a map, some instructions? Do we have GPS yet? We're still waiting on that technology. We don't understand what you're saying, Jesus. You're not making any sense again. Basically, Jesus tells them he's leaving, and the disciples say, but Jesus, it's not fair. (laughs) We don't want to stay here. You've just finished telling us about how much trouble there's going to be. We want to come with you. At the same time though, we also have Jesus in our scripture passage for today telling us, "Do not be troubled or afraid." Jesus spent 5 minutes telling us about how much trouble we're going to have and then he says, "But don't be troubled." Okay, Jesus, get right on that. It doesn't make any sense. How could we not be troubled in the midst of all this trouble, right? It doesn't make any sense. But then it actually gets worse before it gets better. So bear with me, because then Jesus starts to talk about the ruler of this world. Did you catch that part? The ruler of this world who is coming even now. So for many of us, his words might conjure images like this one. The ruler of this world sounds a lot to our modern ears like Satan, but this is is an image of the evil one that Jesus would have been entirely unfamiliar with. Jesus was not picturing a little red devil with horns. Uh, Fun fact, this kind of imagery actually came thousands of years after the life of Jesus. This really started after the publishing of Dante's Inferno uh, in the 14th century. If you're ever looking for a terrifying read, I would recommend Dante's Inferno. (laughs) But this is the, this is the image, um, so this is the, the beast, the creature that's in the most, the innermost circle of hell in Dante's Inferno. And if you'll notice, it's actually not fire that he sort of lives in, it's ice. How did we get that one wrong? I'm confused. But anyway, so he's this little monster, right, that lives in the middle of hell. But then over the following centuries, uh, this image of the evil one um, sort of transforms into this more personified version And that's how we get uh, the image of Satan that you and I are culturally familiar with, even though it's not particularly biblical, right? That image was born 1,600 years after the life of Jesus. So instead of the devil, Jesus was likely picturing a force at work in the world that was bringing about apocalypse. So much like his cousin, John the Baptist, Jesus had... What was known as an apocalyptic worldview. That is, he believed uh, in the coming apocalypse, not in the sense that we know it, uh, but in the sense that the world as they knew it was coming to an end, right? Um, This isn't the same kind of apocalypse that you and I would think of, you know, of the left-behind variety. It's not that. It's not clothes folded up on planes and red skies and Nicolas Cage. It's not that. (laughs) Without getting too far in the weeds here, the word apocalypse actually just comes from the Greek word that means unveiling or revealing. When Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming, which might to us sound a bit intimidating. It might sound kind of end of the world version of apocalypse. Um, He's not saying that. What he is saying is, is that the true power in the world is going to be revealed to us. So he's talking about an apocalypse in the truest sense, the most literal sense of the word. What's interesting is that you and I actually know a lot about the ruler of this world that Jesus talks about. In fact, there are really endless ways we could name how the ruler of this world is at work today. I talked a little bit about this last week, right? It seems... Like, nothing is right right now. That every part of our life as a society is at least a little bit tinged with sort of this chaos and disorder in different ways. As the Apostle Paul would tell us, the powers and the principalities of this world are on display. They've been revealed to us just like Jesus says. And all you have to do really is skim the headlines at any time on any day. Overnight, I was just marveling at how many notifications I got from news apps on my phone. I turned my phone off at nighttime so they didn't wake me up. But in the morning, there's just like 10 of them breaking news. Here's the newest disaster waiting for you the second that you wake up. We know the ruler of this world, don't we? We know about these powers and principalities that are at work in the world. They are Taking lives through war and violence. They are stirring up this dissension and strife. They are under my undermining and oppressing and dividing. And in some ways, we are taking part in that. In some ways, we have responsibility for allowing those powers and principalities to operate completely unchecked in our world. We can't just blame it all on some little red man with horns. We participate in that. So the evil in this world is exactly what Jesus knows is coming. And this is exactly why he predicts so much trouble for us. He knows we're just going to make it harder on ourselves. And that there are these forces that are going to make it harder on us too. He knows that we will experience our own apocalypses. The end of the world as we know it. Those of us who have endured these last couple of years know a little something about apocalypses, don't we? We know a little bit about the end of the world. So that's not great. It's pretty grim. But believe it or not, I actually do find a lot of comfort in Jesus's sad promise that our lives are going to be full of trouble. And the comfort comes for me in the fact that our response to this evil and loss and grief that we encounter, um, our response is expected and it's even sort of predicted by Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. Do you know that the National Alliance on Mental Illness or NAMI estimates that 21% of adults in the United States experience mental illness in 2020. 21%, that is one in five adult Americans. And those are just the folks who received a diagnosis. That does not even touch the number of people who were suffering silently and alone. In addition to that, the CDC estimates that over half of adults in our country will be diagnosed with mental illness at one point or another in their lives. More than 50%. And again, that is just those who will be formally diagnosed. 4% of the country has documented post-traumatic stress disorder. 8% has diagnosed depression. 19% has anxiety disorders. Whether you know it or not, if it is not you yourself, someone you know and love is struggling with mental illness right now. That's the reality in America right now. When we consider statistics like these, I also think it's important for us to talk about how much in our culture we pathologize mental illness to the extent that it becomes stigmatized, that folks with mental illness become demonized. We assume that mental illness is this defect in the core of of who they are and as a direct result of that folks with mental illness are often marginalized or even sometimes sort of just kicked out of society altogether left to their own devices this is our response to the trouble that we experience in the world we are either the people who are suffering or we are the ones who leave no room for those who are To be very, very clear, when we read the Gospels, all four of them, we see Jesus running to those people who have been kicked out of society, to those people who are suffering, to those people who are marginalized. He runs to them and he offers them words of grace and comfort and hope and healing. That's what Jesus does. We see him do that over and over and over again, almost more than anything else that he does in the Gospels. That's what Jesus does. So I want to take a different approach than perhaps has historically been taken. Today Jesus tells us that we will experience trouble. That not only is it possible, but it is expected. Jesus tells us in this world, your soul will be disrupted. Your mind will experience illness. Your heart will be disturbed within you. This is the way that it's going to be for you, Jesus says, because this is the way it is for me. I think Jesus would say to those of us who struggle to maintain some sort of mental health in our lives, some sort of stability, some sort of balance, I think Jesus would speak to those those of us who experience that with ultimate compassion and understanding. I think Jesus would look at us and Jesus would say, of course this is happening. Of course this is true for you. Look around. Look around at the world it makes sense that your heart and your mind and your spirit are not well. It makes sense. And Jesus says this because Jesus is not of this world. And by virtue of the fact that we are his disciples, we are people who are trying with everything that we've got to follow in his footsteps, that means we are not of this world either either. The gospel writer John makes that excessively clear. We are not of this world, and so it makes sense that this is our response to this world. Now, what I'm not saying is that Jesus is not of this world, and neither are we, so we should just wait until we die, and then we can fly away to heaven where the big, fancy, magic mansion in the sky with our name on it is waiting for us. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying that Jesus is not of this world, and so neither should we be. We should reject every little bit of culture and life that we might be able to experience here because it's not like Jesus. I'm not saying that either. What I am saying is what the gospel writer John said. Last week we read from John chapter 1, those famous words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on in that same passage, he continues. He says, the true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world. And the word, the world came into being through the light, but the world didn't recognize the light. The light came to his own people, and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not from blood nor from human desire or passion, but born from God, Jesus, who is the light coming into the world, descends, he is born, he lives, he dies, he is resurrected, and then he ascends. Back to the Father. Jesus is no longer present on earth, at least physically, anymore, right? So what that means is that Jesus is an alien. (laughs) So not one of these kinds of aliens. Although look at how cute he is. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if we learned that that's actually what Jesus really looked like? So what I mean is that (laughs) Jesus is an alien in the sense that he is the incarnation of God on the earth. Jesus is pure love, pure goodness, pure light sent into a world that, well, a world that looks like ours. Maybe you're thinking, well, Jesus wasn't really on the earth at a time like ours. Jesus isn't on earth now. It seems like things are a little bit different now than they were before, worse maybe. But I would argue that aside from obvious historical and cultural differences, Jesus walked the earth during a time that doesn't look all that different from now. There was incredible violence, extreme poverty, illness and suffering of every kind. There was prejudice and discrimination and oppression, some of which Jesus and his people were on the receiving of constantly. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. If there's anyone who knows about that, it is Jesus. Jesus' people knew what it was to suffer. They knew what it was to live as hopeful souls in a world that at times seemed designed to crush them. What Jesus seems to be saying in this final discourse, in his final sermon, is that we can expect to experience things that make our minds unwell. Trouble that stirs us up and messes us up. Not only that, we will also experience physical and spiritual illness, too. Moral injury and heartbreak and loss of every kind. And it's going to be troublesome. In this world, you will have trouble, he says. You know, the words of Jesus here really remind me of a poem by one of my favorite poets, Emily Dickinson. She is someone who experienced mental illness uh, at various points throughout her life and was often ostracized because of it, and you can really read that uh, in her work, in her poetry. But the particular poem that I am thinking of reads like this. Much madness is divinest sense to a discerning eye. Much sense, the starkest madness. Tis the majority in this, as all prevail. Ascent, and you are sane. Demure, and you're straightaway dangerous and handled with a chain. What Emily is saying, what I think Jesus is saying is that if this world prompts you to madness, it makes sense. Not only that, it makes a divine kind of sense. What would Jesus say about our mental health? That's the question that we're asking here today. I think Jesus would say, you're not crazy. Jesus would say, this makes sense. Jesus would say, I understand. It feels important to name that very clearly today. Jesus understands deeply this kind of suffering. But Jesus also promises us that we are not alone ever. That even when he leaves, he is sending this Holy Spirit, this presence of God to be with us. And Jesus offers us a gift. Peace I leave with you, he says. My peace I give to you. I give to you not as the world gives. Don't be troubled or afraid. Jesus offers us the gift of peace, and more specifically, it is his peace that he offers, which I think is a very specific kind of peace. This isn't just the absence of tension or violence or struggle. It's not just a nice slogan or a platitude. This isn't the same kind of peace that the world would give to us. It's different. This peace is an abiding kind of peace. It's an invitation to a way of life. It's a discipline. It's both a gift for us, given to us, and it's a calling for us. Right? Jesus gives us the gift of peace, but then Jesus invites us to become people of peace. So, what does it look like to become a person of peace then? That seems to be the question. What does it mean to embrace this gift of peace that accompanies this promise of trouble that we can be sure is true? Well, the first part of being a person of peace is finding ways to untrouble yourself. Don't be troubled or afraid, Jesus says. There's this saying that circulates in my social media news feeds that says, it's okay to have Jesus and a therapist too. It's a little trite, but it's true. Therapists, counselors, mental health professionals, I believe are a gift from God. They are resources, they are assets of peace for people like us who have been given this impossible instruction to find peace in a world like this. Part of my job as a pastor here is to be connected to those resources locally. So if it would ever be helpful for you to know what mental health resources are available to you, please reach out to me as part of my job. And I would love nothing more than to help you find a resource that can give you the tools that you need to untrouble yourself. I would love nothing more than to help you find a little bit of peace. But the second part of being a person of peace is actually joining the Holy Spirit in the work of advocating for it, not just for ourselves, that's the first part, but for everyone. Everyone needs to have this peace. We need more people of peace normalizing conversations about mental health and therapy. We need that. We need more people of peace making space for those in our society who struggle with mental illness. We need a lot more room for those folks. We need people of peace who are being advocates for healing and wholeness in every single community we inhabit. In this world that so desperately and urgently needs healing and wholeness. But here's the important part for for these recommendations. I actually don't think we will ever find peace if we are not able to do both of them. Yes. We have to start with ourselves. We have to be people who are seeking actively to untrouble ourselves and to seek peace for ourselves. But if we never take that second step, if we never try to reform this world so that everyone can find a life of peace, so that everyone can physically and mentally and spiritually thrive, then I don't think we will ever truly know peace. We might convince ourselves that we do. We might be able to pretend we're at peace when we finally do all the things that we're supposed to do, right? We get the job, and then we marry the person, and then we have the kids, and then we buy the nice house, and then we just keep doing that kind of stuff over and over again. Maybe that will bring us peace. Or maybe when we finally make enough money that we don't have to worry about it anymore. How nice would that be, right? Then I'll finally be at peace. Or maybe even just we found the perfect therapist, and we finally made a breakthrough. Then maybe we'll finally have peace, right? That's half of the equation, But we have to be a part of creating a world that makes peace for every single person. That's the thing about the peace that Jesus offers. It is all interconnected. It's this big, messy web of peace. Our peace isn't just personal. It is communal. And that will only happen, we believe, when the kingdom of God is brought to earth. A kingdom that is characterized by peace. I think we have our work cut out for us. But I'm really grateful to be serving a church like this, a place that holds mental health as one of its core values. That's something that we always care about here at The Peak. We always want to be a part of that conversation. We always want to be a church that's making space for folks. We always want to be a church that has these honest conversations and partners hand-in-hand with those mental health experts, those people who can lead us in this work of finding peace Together. I'm grateful for that. On a more personal note, I'm also really grateful for the opportunity to preach on this particular topic today to imagine with you what Jesus might say to us about our mental health. As I'm sure is true for most of us, uh, this conversation around mental health is very personal for me. Mental illness tends to run in my family. Many of my loved ones have been diagnosed with depression or anxiety disorder. Um, At the age of 51, my aunt was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which is actually pretty late in life for a diagnosis like that. And um, the more that we've learned about our family tree, the more that we think uh, she shares this diagnosis with our great-grandfather, who just didn't have the mental health resources to know what he was suffering with. My aunt is like my second mom. She's a she and my mom were pregnant at the same time with me and my cousin and we were born three weeks apart and so they used to call us the Twisted Sisters because we were just inseparable. Um, we went everywhere together. We lived in the same city and we went to the same schools and so we were super close. They made us wear all the same outfits. You know, it was really cute, Or <laughs> so I'm told. Uh, my aunt is a, a speech therapist who worked primarily with elementary and middle-aged, uh, middle school aged kids. Um, disabled children uh, to help them speak. She's one of the smartest people I've ever met and she has a heart that's so big that the whole world falls in, as Mother Teresa would say. She is a teacher and a daughter and a sister, a wife and a mother, a devoted disciple of Jesus. And my aunt is no longer alive. In 2009, shortly after her diagnosis when I was 15, she completed suicide. As you might imagine, that was incredibly traumatic for my family. Uh, We got the call from police in the middle of that night, and I remember just being completely unable to really process what had happened for hours. It took me hours to understand. And even when I did, I mean, those following days were the worst of my life. The thing that I couldn't wrap my mind around is that I was with her earlier that week, and she was as happy as I had seen her since all of this had happened. So I can truly say that I really didn't see it coming, and I think the shock was part of it. But I understand now, I think through conversations around mental health, through therapy, just growing up and understanding more about the world, I understand now that she was really sick and that she was in an unimaginable kind of pain. What I learned in the following weeks and months is that the church often has little to no language for addressing mental illness. The church often has little to no language for talking about this kind of intense mental distress or unexpected tragedy. We're just historically not very good at talking about that. I learned that very intimately over the next several months. And that's why I really want this church, this specific church, to be a part of that conversation. I want us to learn that language, and I'm actually really proud of the steps that we've taken to do that already. But I also learned uh, during those months that the church already does have some tools for this. The church already knows how to come around those who are grieving and struggling and suffering in community. As I've reflected over the years, I've really been able to name my aunt's funeral as one of the first times that my calling into ministry became really clear to me because that day the church gathered around us in the hundreds. There were hundreds of people there with us grieving and mourning this loss. The pastor's words were like this balm for my family that really held us together in the midst of that tragedy. The hymns that we sang reminded us of these promises of God that we were just clinging to in those moments. And in the midst of, of that really incredibly hard day, I just remember feeling certain that God never left, that there was never a moment that my aunt was alone in her suffering, that God was with her in every moment wishing nothing less for her than her complete wholeness and healing, waiting to offer her the kind of peace that surpasses all understanding, the kind of peace that I know she has now. I just remember feeling all of that so clearly. I witnessed the church fulfilling one of its most important roles to offer a communal witness of hope, comfort, and salvation in the midst of this tragedy. That's part of our job And ultimately, I realized God was calling me to offer that kind of witness in the world, too. That's why I'm here. That day, the pastor preached on Psalm 139, which has since become my favorite. And it reads like this. Where could I go to get away from your spirit? Where could I go to escape your presence? If I went up to heaven, you would be there. If I went down to the grave, you would be there too. If I could fly on the wings of dawn, stopping only to rest on the far side of the ocean, even there your hand would guide me. Even there your strong hand would hold me tight. If I said, the darkness will definitely hide me, the light will become night around me. Even then, the darkness isn't too dark for you. Nighttime would shine bright as day because darkness is the same as light to you. What I remember so clearly from that day is this conviction that the presence of God is with us always, even and perhaps especially when we find ourselves in the darkest of times even and perhaps especially when we find ourselves in the grave. This is the witness of peace that we are called to offer to the world. This is our work. To come around those who are struggling and suffering, those who can't see a way out, those who can't find hope, and to show them again how to find it. Our job is to remind them and ourselves that even in the moments when the darkness seems insurmountable, the true light has been with us all along in every single moment. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org. Peak